We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! I'm a COVID-free Drew, and that's Roth. Hi, Roth! Congratulations on your negative test, man. I'm I am negative. My sons are negative. My uh my wife is finally negative, and my daughter. My daughter, when she had it, she never tested positive. So we were like, well, maybe she has a cold. You know, it just happens to be a coincidence. And then she finally tested positive, and we were like, ha, you have it, and you ha always had it. And now I have no idea if she's testing positive or not, because she's been symptomatic for like, she was symptom, her first symptoms were like 20 days ago, and she's no longer symptomatic. So it whatever, it doesn't matter. That's good. My, uh, my parents got it again recently and had, uh, my mom never tested positive, but had all the symptoms. And I was surprised. I saw them over the weekend in just how much she has invested in the idea of having had a, a cold with really mysteriously COVID adjacent symptoms that was definitely not COVID. Like she's like competitive with my dad who tested positive. She's like, well, I never had it. But uh, we did have the same symptoms at the same time. And we both slept for 12 hours a day for five days. It's but, a, it's, uh, that was really it, more of a your dad thing was actually getting it. It's a fantastic illness for testing your capacity for willful denial. Mm -hmm. I have found it really, really, you know, I have like weird pain in my hands and I'm like, oh, well, I must have carpal tunnel syndrome now, uh, along with a cold. I couldn't be anything else. Yeah, you got to alter your, blo your uh, blogging technique. You know, Roth, you have begged me all year long to do an NFL draft preview podcast. And you know what? I think it's time I indulge you. It's the Is week it of the draft. Can you do the do, 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 Oh, I love that. Yeah. Do, 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 do. It was mentioned in the work Slack earlier today because I dropped that little chime in there that there's like half of our staff, like when they hear that, just starts salivating and like oh, yeah. thinking about defensive tackles, like just smart people whose brains are completely rewired around that sound. Yep. Instant boner for me. So <laughs> let's get to talking about the draft and our guest to that end. It's Austin Gale of Pro Football Focus. Hi, oh. Austin. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, my God. An actual football knower is on here. And we're going to ask you. Honor. Like, we're going to, like, I'm not going to ask you, like, who do you think is going to go number one? Because that's just fucking stupid. I want to ask you sort of more sort of macro draft questions because I feel like the work that you guys have done on the draft and how teams draft and how they ought to draft has been actually quite revelatory. And I wasn't paid to say that because nobody pays me to say anything, which mm, isn't true. really fair. So. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about how you guys approach, um, you know, how you guys approach evaluating teams, evaluating players. Does that make sense, or is that too wordy, Austin? No, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I think with uh, you know with Pro Football Focus and a lot of what we're trying to do, it's affect decision making in a positive manner, hopefully, right? It's leveraging advanced analytics, you know, better production grades, more predictive data to make decisions in all areas of football, whether you're a fantasy football player making a start sit decision or a GM looking to draft a player, right? It's providing you with ample data that is predictive, right? In, um, in more so than yards per carry or touchdowns or receptions and those types of things. And that same data is leveraged, obviously, in fourth down decisions and whether or not to sign a player, to sign a guy in free agency or trade a player or cut a player. So for the draft specifically, you know, a lot, a lot of what we look at is what is predictive going from college to the NFL. 
And a lot of that is measurables, athletic testing, arm length for receivers, arm length for offensive tackles, arm length for pass rushers. Um, and then there's a lot of you know, production in it as well. And for specific positions like pass rusher, offensive tackle, quarterback, receiver, we have really good production grades that translate from college to the NFL. More of the off-ball positions like safety, corner, off-ball linebacker, we have yet to like really hit on predictive data in those areas, but athletic testing is still very measurable, right? And I think production grades for players have been around for a long time in the NFL. How many sacks did he have last year? How many starts right. did this offensive tackle have? How many, uh, how many catches did this receiver have? But those production grades have gotten so much better because you can isolate you know, more specific situations that are more predictive, right? For quarterbacks, it's clean pocket passing performance. It's um, accuracy at 10 plus yards. It's accuracy at 20 plus yards. It's, it's those different things. For offensive tackle, it's you know, pass blocking win rate on true pass sets. So you're removing RPOs and play action and screens. And for pass rushers, it's looking at on third and four plus when in obvious passing situations, how often are they hitting home in one-on-one -on -one situations? So we have a lot of that more predictive data that we leverage to create our own evaluations. And then for teams, another factor of this too is looking at positional value, right? I think it's a big buzzword in today's like NFL draft evaluation. I think it's been popularized over the last five to 10 years, but what it really is, is how much do you pay a player on a second contract? Quarterbacks are the highest paid players in the NFL. It's not even close. And then it's offensive right. tackle, and then it's pass rusher, receiver, corner. And as you get lower and lower, you get into off-ball linebacker, center, and running back. And when you're looking to you – know, the draft is not for need. The draft is for value. And when you're looking to draft value in the top 15, top 20 picks, you're looking at those high-value positions. Pass rusher, off the tackle, obviously quarterback, wide receiver, and corner. And that's where you've seen the league trend away from, hopefully, uh, you know, drafting guys you know, into your offensive linemen, you know, box safeties, off-ball linebackers, running backs, high in that top 15, top 20 area, unless they're game-changing players. And even in that, you know, the highest-paid center in the NFL doesn't make as much as the 20th-ranked tackle. You know, it, it's, it's just not a position that you should value above in when you're looking for value in the draft. Why is that? It's because it's uh, – I think some of it is just replaceability at the position, right? And it's also just like how, how many you – know, the, the center – in the NFL, the worst center in the NFL allows probably 18 to 25 pressures in a season. That's my, that's my center. My center. The, the worst <laughs> offensive tackle in the NFL allows a hundred, 110. You know, so oh. like, it's like, it's not like the, the, the disparity in like the best center and worst center is there. There's a, the distribution includes a lot there. Whereas with the worst offensive tackle and the best offensive tackle, it's a lot wider of a distribution. And the guys that are at the top are way different than the guys at the bottom. And I think, you know, that's, that's, that's relative to all interior offensive line positions. The tackles allow the most pressures, the guards allow the second most, and then the center allows the least. So it's obviously the less valuable position because if you have a massive weak link at center, it's nowhere near as, a failure is having a massive weak link at tackle. And then you look at running back, it's that all, there's a ton of really good running backs. And also the NFL has gotten away from true starters at that position. Only six running backs in the NFL last year played more than 60% of their offensive snaps, like of the team's offensive snaps. Like oh, you the are committee now. Yeah, you're, you're looking at committees more and more in today's NFL. So, like, why are you drafting a player inside the top 10, inside the top 15? That's not even going to, you know, oftentimes play more than half of your offensive snaps. It's more yeah, often looking that? at, go because ahead. Dave Gettleman uh, picked up a vibe from <laughs> yeah. He sensed yeah. a winner. Exactly. He, sensed he, 
he, we had did, to go right to Dave Gettleman. Gettleman was, wrote in his notebook, "Got that dog in him," and then underlined it. <laughs> which was that's all it takes. Yeah, you go back to that Dave Gettleman picture of him looking at you know new, a paper binder of all of his evaluations. If you're if you're making picks, multi million dollar decisions with a binder of paper in yep. 2021, I think I think we're behind the eight ball there. I will stay away from Gettleman chat, but it was just funny as you're outlining all of this stuff and all of which makes absolute sense. Um, also feels to me like it's new. Not just since I started caring about the NFL, but like since I turned 30, like most of these ideas feel like it was like the whole league had Gettleman brain in like 2007, it feels like. Yeah, and, I mean, and now I, we're, you know, somehow like all of this stuff at this point has become like, you know, the value idea. Like I remember like the Jimmy Johnson chart with like picks and what they're worth and all that shit that like there these were ideas that existed, although they were by no means universal. Understanding players in that way to me feels like, like not just the, like the nuanced element of it, but the fact that it's no longer a totally vibe-based art form feels like a, a very recent development. Yeah, like I remember when franchise running back versus franchise quarterback was like an argument people had, and it wasn't like that long ago. It was yeah. back when like the fucking Saints traded everything for Ricky Williams. Like that wasn't that was like twenty years ago. That wasn't that long I, ago. And I think a, a big part of that too. It's not you know as much as you want to like maybe pat pat your back in terms of how advanced analytics have changed how people think about that. I think a huge change is the rookie wage scale. It's a massive change. Like a, right. a rookie wage scale changed everything in terms of how you actually value evaluate each position. You know when Jamarcus Russell could get drafted and he could negotiate his contract into like an eighty million dollar guaranteed thing. It made it completely different to. The player picked, regardless of the position he plays at number four overall, makes the same amount of money. When Saquon Barkley was picked inside the top five, he was immediately paid as the top 10 running back in the NFL. Like, if you draft an offensive tackle at four overall, he doesn't even crack the top 25. Right. Like, it's a totally different ball game. And I think the, the rookie weight scale in the NFL wasn't shifted until, what, 2011? So I think a lot of that change is, you know, is recent because – how the NFL has gamified roster building, right? With the salary cap situation, free agency, then you factor in the rookie wage scale. It's gamified it to a point where you have to look at a center differently than you look at an offensive tackle. And that's not just because of the value they bring on the football field. I think position value gets billed too much as how much does he affect the, the wins of the game? I think mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff can get pretty murky, but what it, what it does affect is your bottom line in terms of how much you're paying these guys, right? Like if you, 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 you objectively pay your tackles more, you objectively pay your wide receivers more than you do some of these low value positions. Yeah, and I guess like stealing a few years of value at the very beginning of their career exactly. is like has that extra marginal value. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I was going to ask you, Austin, because I know that to be true. Do you ever find it a touch icky that that happens to be true? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things icky about the NFL, right? I think it's absurd that Philip Lindsay ran for, what, two, maybe 3,000-yard season for the Broncos on an undrafted free agent contract and got spit out of that franchise so quickly and can barely find a roster spot now. Like, it's how rookie contracts are you know, put together. And when you look at, well, if you're drafted in the first round, it comes with a fifth year option and they can pay you and like kind of lock you into this five years of service. If you're drafted in the third round, you'll get maximum a three-year contract. Undrafted free agents are only allowed this much guaranteed. It's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I think it's, le it's led to, again, owners and, and people making decisions in the NFL playing the game, right? You can't play, you're playing the game. Right? You know, you get, your mom gave you $10 to run the lemonade stand. You better maximize the $10 you got. You know, it's not as easy as other, you know, other sports where there is less of this conversation in terms of salary cap and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. And if you're the Detroit Lions, you buy too many lemons, you know. Exactly. <laughs> hey now! Terrific. We love, we love to do NFC Central humor on the podcast. <laughs> um, 
So I, then I want to talk about um, the quarterbacks because obviously your best bargain is um, a, core, a good quarterback on a rookie contract, and the Bengals just proved that with Joe Burrow, right? Um, because of the rookie wage scale, a QB on a rookie contract, it's the best asset that any team can have. So my question to you is, Austin, do you feel like more teams are willing to draft quarterbacks high every year to sort of hit that bullseye the way that mm-hmm. Howie Roseman did with Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts? Or do you think that that's still a revelation they have yet to have? I think teams do want to maximize that kind of home run, right? If you get a quarterback on a rookie contract and he exceeds even you know, a, 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 a slightly above average quarterback on a rookie contract is worth more than a slightly above average quarterback on a pay, a second contract, right? You look at the Kirk Cousins situation in Minnesota or Derek Carr in Las Vegas or yeah, Car- Car- Carson Wentz in Philly, Jared Goff in Los Angeles, Matthew Stafford in Detroit. Like you, you have these different situations where teams are avoiding quarterbacks that you would call good top 12, top 10, uh, you know, t- in the conversation, but they make it immediately harder to build around when they're getting paid as much as they are $30 million guaranteed per year, all that stuff. So if you can get a Mac Jones who, Maybe he'll never be a top eight, top six quarterback, but can be top 12, top 14 on a rookie contract. And, and he's getting spend. paid like less than exactly. Chase Daniel is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, you, and you look what the New England Patriots did before they drafted Mac Jones. They spent more than any team has ever spent in free agency ever. Like, yes. like they, they, they dumped a lot of money because they knew they were going to go after a rookie quarterback and try and play that game. And I think it's a smart decision for teams that don't have a quarterback, right? So something I've said on my podcast before is the worst, worst thing in the NFL is a good quarterback on a second contract. <laughs> it'll, it'll kill you it'll it'll hang you into this mediocrity that the Raiders are in in my opinion and it'll force you into a situation like the Detroit Lions are in with Matthew Stafford good quarterback bad roster you have to move on him for picks and and all that stuff so I think there's two ways that teams are prioritizing being Super Bowl competitive it's drafting a really good quarterback which is very difficult to do you know you see the the Kansas City Chiefs you obviously traded up when they had Alex Smith take them to the playoffs and still grab Patrick Mahomes the other thing is is building a really good roster and then trading everything you've got to go get a quarterback that you think you can win with. That's obviously what the Rams did with Matthew Stafford. That's what, um, you know, the, the San Francisco 49ers tried to do, right, with Trey Lance when they moved all those first-round picks for Trey Lance. It's teams chasing eliteness at the position more so than ever. Uh, and I think another part of this conversation, too, and is, is the rookie wage scale makes it that much harder, in my opinion, to develop guys. You know, back in the day, people were like, oh, why come rookie quarterbacks don't sit years anymore? You know, I think a lot of it's because you're trying to maximize this window. I got a rookie quarterback on a rookie contract. I'm trying to make some plays here. If I, yeah. if I get right, because they're cheap them, for like three years or whatever, exactly, and then you got exactly. it right. An average play, average play from a quarterback on a rookie contract is so valuable. <laughs> so valuable because you can build around him. You can throw the kitchen sink at resources and all that stuff. Can I ask you about uh, these specific quarterbacks? Because by my count, there are five potential first round quarterbacks in this draft. We got Malik mm-hmm. Willis. Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, Matt Corral, and Sam Howell. Are do you? It is considered, at least, and and I this is a bit of a straw man, but to me, it's considered a weak quarterback class, uh, particularly compared to next year when Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud would be available. Do you feel that way? And do you do you feel that there that the value of all five of these guys will be inflated because of the importance of the position and because of the rookie wage scale, or do you really like these guys? I think the value will definitely be inflated. I think the value of the quarterback position will be inflated for as long as we're probably alive, just because it's just, you know, compared to any other sport, it's just that much more valuable of a position. Uh, For this quarterback class, I think the blanketed terms that we've leveraged or used with it is, you know, bad, uh, weak, not good. I think the more specific can word I use English is, doctor. Yeah. Can you- <laughs> <laughs> the more specific word I'd use is is unpolished. 
because there are, there are traits to like in this class. Malik Willis, six foot, 220, broke more, ta- broke more tackles than any quarterback in the FBS last year, super athletic, didn't run, but no, you run is in that four fives, maybe high four fives at the worst. The issue is, is he's wildly inaccurate. Uh, and uh, older prospect coming out and hasn't super, you know, hasn't developed significantly over the course of his career and, and isn't a great processor and nowhere near the processor that people want. That seems very worrisome to me. It's worrisome, right? Things. But in a league that has benefited from betting on traits like a Mahomes, like a Herbert, you know, I, I think it's he's going to get valued very highly because there's going to be a team that can talk themselves into, I could turn him into the next this guy or the next this guy. And, you know, I think another conversation around rookie quarterbacks too, and I know you want to talk specifically about these other guys, but I'll bring up that league more so now than ever because, again, you need to maximize the value of quarterbacks on rookie contracts is willing to sh- change their offense completely to cater to a quarterback's strengths. You know, back in the day, you draft a quarterback, he's like, he's got to fit in my offense. If he doesn't fit in my offense, he's trash. Now it's like you draft Lamar Jackson, you completely change everything you do. You're like, okay, now we're going to run, you know, we're going to run all these things. We're going to draft these receivers. We're going to build up the offensive line. You draft Josh Allen, Brian Dable changes everything he does. We're going to run the football more with our quarterback. We're going to make sure he's, you know, focusing down the field. Um, You look at Patrick Mahomes and what he's in with Kansas City. Like you change your offense to cater his strengths. I think that's going to elevate this quarterback class too, because Malik Willis in a Eagles offense, similar to what Jalen Hurts is running, uh, I think could have some success. And I think you look at what Sam Howell and Matt Corral do. It was such a high percentage of RPOs in their offense, a lot of first read throws. You're going to need to do something similar in the NFL. And if you're willing to kind of bend your offense in that direction, you could probably get plus play out of them. For Desmond Ritter, probably, I hate the term pro style because there is no pro style anymore. What Mahomes runs is completely different to what Lamar Jackson runs, but he has the most NFL throws on tape. You know, he can hit, the second, third read on a 15 to 19 yard window of the backside dig, right? Like you don't see that on Matt Corral's tape or Sam Howell's tape because they just don't throw those balls. So with Ritter, he checked his own protections. He's got easily the most experience of any of these quarterbacks in this group. He's been under center. He can run the play action boot. There are going to be teams that feel like, okay, I can make an offense around Ritter, similar to what Tennessee runs with Ryan Tannehill. And I think I can win with that one. The, the concerns with him are a little bit slim. You know, I think there are teams that are really concerned with QB weight in terms of durability in the NFL. Oh, and really? then also... What is what was what is the uh, the floor weight? It depends on your size, how tall you are, right? But you don't right. want any quarterback nearing the one nineties, right? You, you want guys that are two hundred five plus, and, and I, it will have conversations with uh, Nate Tice, who does a lot of really good work for the Athletic, and he was a former quarterback himself, and you know he brought up concerns with Zach Wilson and his frame and, and how sustainable he is in the NFL because you get hit all the time and all that stuff. So it's I think there are, yeah, he's a little guy. I, I think with Ritter, concerns about his weight potentially, but also he's not like overly accurate right he's, he's 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 accurate enough but i think there are concerns as he gets down the field and as he gets under pressure how accurate he is do there do you ever feel like uh teams get too enamored of case studies like josh allen and think oh i can just do that with malik willis and it'll be fine and they have actually they've actually concentrated too much on anomaly rather than something that might be the the more likely scenario that a raw prospect does not work out I'll argue that it's more of a, that's more of a media narrative, right? Oh, he could be the next Josh Allen. He could be the, okay. you know, back, back in the day when it was like a super accurate short quarterback. It's like, he could be the next Drew Brees. You know, you look at a big arm guy who's outside of structure. It's, oh, he could be the next Mahomes. I, I do think that that's more of a media narrative. I think for teams, right? So much more of the conversation. You talk to Bucky Brooks, who does stuff for NFL media and was a former scout himself. There's so much of the conversation in these rooms with teams is what can he do? Don't tell me what he can't do. I need to know what he can do. And that's why Malik Willis is going to be so intriguing. Same with Kenny Pickett. Kenny Pickett's the most accurate quarterback in this class. What can he do? Put the ball where you need it. Okay, how do we build an offense around him? We do this, this, and this. We have the offensive line to do it. We have the receiving core to do it. Probably not. Where do we value him based off that? Like That's the conversation people are having. I think less so are teams looking at 
know, a quarterback like Malik Willis and saying, oh man, I can turn him into the next Josh Allen. You're like, no, I need to turn him into the best version of himself. And that's avoiding, <laughs> avoiding second and third read throws, probably a lot of quick stuff, a lot of quick game in that offense, a good offensive line. He's terrible, you know, converting pressure to sacks last year for Liberty. So a lot has to be done. And then that's when the evaluation starts to drop, right? So, okay, when you start to figure out he can't do this, can't do that, what can he do? Only these limited things. Can I build an offense around him? Probably not. Well, uh, here's a question for you. I, uh, your research, you correct me if I'm wrong here, it showed that your odds of getting a good quarterback drop significantly once you get out of, like I would say, the top half of the first round. Mm-hmm. Once you get into the, the lower half of the, of the first round and then the second and third round, your, your odds of, of a quarterback hitting despite like the Russell Wilsons and the Tom Brady's of the world, it becomes much, much more remote. Mm-hmm. Um, so if these players are drafted high, yeah. even though it's a result of inflation of the position, does that still improve their odds of success? Probably, probably a little bit, right? Because the higher you draft him, the longer leash you give him. You know, you look at the Daniel Jones situation at six overall. Like if Daniel, oh, that's a long leash. You don't have to do that. If Daniel Jones was drafted the second round, I don't even think he gets a second chance, like a second season Fuck with, no. with New York. Yeah. But like, because you drafted him so highly, you, you put some situation around him and you like want to continue to bet on like, oh man, if we just give him receiver, we just give him this, we just give him that. So if these guys are drafted, you know, if any of these guys are drafted in the top 10, the leash, it lengthens. And you're like, oh, give him two years, give him three years. But the conversation I've had this entire way uh, in this pre-draft process is the ownership for the team that does invest in a Malik Willis or a Kenny Pickett or Sam Howell, Matt Crowell, whoever it is, has to enter with the expectation that if it doesn't pan out and it is not looking good, we need to move on rapidly. Similar to Josh Rosen in Arizona. Yeah. Like right. It has to be. Ha- this is a Josh Rosen in Arizona class where, okay, we drafted Malik Willis at 19, but if he looks like ass next year, we're going to need to like really move on from him and look at CJ Stroud, Bryce Young, Will Levis of Kentucky is is highly valued. I think that's what the conversation needs to be. But if ownership's like, hey, so say say you're you're GM of a team, and ownership's like the QBU draft, you're hitching your wagon to for the next three years, and if it doesn't work out, you're out. I'm not taking a quarterback then. If ownership says yeah. that to me and they said you're going to get fired if you know you're going to get fired if this quarterback doesn't work out, I probably don't take one. But so if do you feel owner- like there's some new flexibility in terms of teams being willing to actually? do that and cut bait because I'm moving on from Rosen. When I was a kid, teams would draft guys because I think it was still basically caveman days in terms of this. So you draft like Dan McGuire and then you're like, oh, wow, he's a stiff. All right. And then they don't play. But mm-hmm. the idea of like picking a guy, I mean, Rosen was picked like 10th overall or something like that, 10th. right? They traded and, up to get Josh Rosen. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and they just instantly were like, all right, well, this isn't working out. And they <laughs> went and got Kyler Murray. Like that to me, like... I don't think of Steve Kime as being like an important thinker necessarily. And yet like that was really gutsy and not something that I feel like teams have, have done very much. Like, is there like a new way or a new frame of thought in terms of like understanding how to admit that you've made a mistake without actually having to say as much? Yeah, I think it is weird. And I don't, I don't think team, it's definitely not common. I think the Arizona situations may be one of one, maybe an outlier. I, I say like this year's well, class. Well, they got the got, first pick of the draft. Exactly. They had the first pick in the draft. They got a new head coach that was coming over from college that loved Kyler Murray. And Steve Kime has worked for one NFL team his entire career. It's Arizona. You talk about a guy that's got some freaking breathing room. He could pr- mm-hmm. probably do whatever he wants. So <laughs> I, I think it's a one of one situation there. For this year, though, and, and what, what teams need to think about more, right, I think is – you know, it's not that dissimilar. I mean, the Panthers drafted Jimmy Clausen, what, in the second round, and immediately were like Cam Newton next year, and the next yeah. year. So it, yeah, I think I this know. year's class, that's probably more of a corollary because I think the quarterbacks are going to come off the board in the back half of the first. 
Um, and I think it's more, it's so much just like ownership expectation versus, and, and I don't think that that's probably one of the most under discussed things in, in draft evaluation. What are the owners who pay the GM and coach want you to do? And you look at the bears last year, ownership probably said, if you don't win a lot of games next year, you're out. So they traded up for Justin Fields and they traded up for Tevin Jenkins. Didn't work out. They played Andy Dalton. And now Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy are on, you know, get fired in Chicago. If ownership is telling you something similar, right? If you don't win a lot of games next year, we're probably going to be on the outside looking in. I think about a team like the Panthers, Scott Fitterer, or Matt Rule, probably on a decently hot seat. If they say, if you don't win a lot of games next year, they probably lead to some short-term decision-making, right? It's like, okay, then we trade for Baker Mayfield and maybe we you know, trade future first to get into this year's round. You, know, you start making some short-term decision-making and you start making some mistakes. They are they are a remarkably stupid team, and I'm and I'm awed <laughs> yeah. by their ability to out stupid I really Texans. Think, uh, the May- Mayfield thing was like that rumor was so delightful to me. The idea that they could theoretically next year just go into the season with like Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield hanging out together on sidelines <laughs> during games is. I think Baker it's more Mayfield. likely. I, I think it's more likely that they go for Jimmy G. I, I, I think that's the landing spot I like the most for Jimmy Garoppolo. Now we'll see. Like I, I also think the Panthers are probably going to trade down because they only have one pick in the first 134 picks in this year's draft. And if I'm Fitterer, if I'm Rule, I'm looking to just get more rookies, right, and, and hitch my wagon to more outcomes because the one player you take at six is not going to reinvent the wheel for you. And I, I, I'm definitely concerned if I'm Matt Rule and Scott Fitterer right now. A lot has to go right for them if they're going to be you know, in, in Carolina next year. Uh, let's take a break and come right back with Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus. We're back with Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus, talking about the draft and talking about teams' processes. And I wanted to ask you, um, Austin, it seemed to me very I, – I, I thought it might be a touch antiquated uh, if teams had, like, an actual draft board instead of instead of basically having tiers of players that, that they think are acceptable to take at a slot and not sort of limiting themselves to falling in love with Daniel Jones – or Saquon Barkley, et cetera, et cetera. Be, you know, there's so many examples that you can use. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do teams, in your experience, still stick to the idea of a board? 100%. Teams definitely have a draft board, right? And they work off of it. And are there times where they don't, like, stick to their board, right? For sure. But I think the, the biggest difference in how, I think, media and fans see team draft boards versus what they actually are is probably how many players are on it. You know, you talk to oh. so many people at the, at the Combine every single year. I was talking to Brady Quinn recently. He says the number one reason teams come to the combine is to do the interviews and do the medical checks. And there are times where you think about the Maurice Hurst situation. Maurice Hurst, a former Michigan defensive tackle, some people liked him as a first-round pick. He has that heart condition at the combine, falls all the way to fifth. That's not because teams then dropped him as a fifth-round pick. It's like there were probably like 20 teams that said we're not going to draft him. So you just keep falling, you keep falling. Think about the DK Metcalf situation. There are some teams saw his three cone and said – he could be available in the fifth. We're not taking him. Like that's that's how teams will do it. It's oftentimes that there are certain things like in the interview process, whether like it's just not a fit for their culture, or fit for their locker room, in the medical check process, or even just like some clear thresholds, like arm length thresholds. There are teams who are like we will not draft an offensive tackle with under thirty three inch arms. Period. It's just not in our process. It's not in our philosophy. I don't care if he's available as a seventh round pick because we'll never develop as a starter and all those types of things. Is that too legitimate- rash? Very rash, right? I think it's a it's a way way too traditional way of thinking. It's like you know size, you know height, weight, speed is such like a a trope in the NFL that like I think it's getting you know not enough people are looking at the range of outcomes in terms of like hey like this player could develop and if you give him opportunity. Now I do think that there are legitimate thresholds, 
and, and you can leverage data to create those. You think about outside cornerback in the NFL, there's only like six that have sub 30 inch arms. Like that's a legitimate threshold. We're like, yeah, I'm probably going to start considering the sub 30 inch uh, arm cornerbacks as like outliers if they're going to progress. And the ones that do run really fast. If you have sub 30 inch arms, you're going to have to have really good recovery speed. You're going to have to sub four speed. So when I look at a player like Trent McDuffie, who's got, you know, sub 30 inch arms and ran like a four, 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 there are going to be teams that are not high on McDuffie, you know, teams that run a lot of man coverage. That's another thing too, that people gets people off their board. You know, if a team runs a lot of man coverage and, uh, and you know, wants guys up and press their cornerbacks, they're just like, literally, we're not going to draft them. You know, Trent McDuffie ran like 80% zone coverage. We're not going to draft him. That's not going to fit into our defense. And I think that's a huge reason why, the NFL has such a development problem. You know, you got, hey, we're drafting players only for our defense, and the defense coordinator gets a head coaching job next year. And they change your defense, and you flip your philosophy, and, like, players are get played out of position. They get moved in here and there. They got, like, maximized different schemes. You think about Corey Littleton. Corey Littleton was one of the highest-grade linebackers in all of football when he played for the Rams. Then he gets moved to the Raiders, doesn't really know the system. It's, like, one of the worst you know, linebackers in football. I, I do think that scheme is so much more important, too. It's not as simple as I like X cornerback, Y cornerback, and then Z cornerback. It's like, no, the only cornerbacks that will fit my system are X and Z. Why is that even on my board? So I think that's another part of the process as well. That's if you ran a it, team – oh, go ahead, bro. No, I was just going to say what you were saying earlier about, you know, teams being willing to sort of, like – in selecting a quarterback to be like, all right, well, this person is not more important. Like Norv Turner is not more important than the quarterback that we have. Like, so we like Norv is going to have to work around him. Like that's how this is going to go. It's like interesting to see like sense. where the, the sort of tiering of importance in those positions are, because it seems it's not like defense matters less. And as you said, it's not like cornerbacks are really paid that much less mm-hmm. than, you know, other like of the sort of that elite class. And yet like the idea that yeah. that kind of measurement would be, you know, that like, two inches of arm length could be just like determinative for half or more than half of the teams in the NFL. To me, seems like, I guess there was a part of me when you were saying the earlier bit about the quarterbacks where I was like, look at these guys, like thinking like it's the 21st century. And then this is the shit that I actually expect from NFL teams. Yes. yes, Which is not like just like, you know, real troglodyte, like, you know, he doesn't even know how to make eggs. Like he's, he's not a Ram, (laughs) you know, which is like what I'm used to thinking about. But there is, like, some element of it that is, uh, like, clearly very, very stubborn and, like, wedded to, uh, like, philosophy even. 100%. Beyond scheme. I mean, you have those conversations about offensive line coach where the first question is, here's a bottle of ketchup. And how they leverage a bottle of ketchup is determinative of, like, how they process. It's it's absurd. I mean, look at all. We don't draft of- anyone that doesn't hit the label. That's yes. just not, not how we do it. Yes. But look at all the discourse on Kayvon Thibodeau. I mean, the Oregon defensive end who, like, has his own Bitcoin and plays chess. And people are like, I could never draft him. I, the guy, the guy's not draftable. There's just no way. He's got too big of a personality. He'd never fit. You know, you, I, I always go back to this rant. I'm not sure if you saw it when it was on Twitter. I think it went kind of you know kind of popularized but Dean Pease goes on this big rant about the defense quarter of the Atlanta Falcons and how he's like so upset that people are using computers and he's like uh you know I still write everything down on pens yeah. and paper and it's like okay you, know, you think about Kayvon Thibodeau and some people are like he's uncoachable too big of a personality he's uncoachable to that guy you know Dean right. isn't going to be able to handle Kayvon Thibodeau who's like working to maximize his value with NFTs and shit. Like, it's just not going to work. And there's a lot of that traditionalist thinking with off-field self, in my opinion. And that's probably where the league needs to progress the most. Because guess what? Coaching this generation of human beings is going to be a thousand percent different than coaching the previous generation with obviously the surge in the internet and how you can maximize values, social media, betting, like, you're going to need to figure it out because I think these coaches that have been around since like the 1800s and you're like, if he doesn't hit the label on the bottle of ketchup, that it's just going to be bad. It's just going to really lead to a lot of good players not getting effectively developed and coached. 
That's uh, why it's so important that those coaches have their own sons also on the staff. Yes, of course. So that they can course. relate to Yes, them. yeah. If, if Dean P's son isn't involved, I mean, what's the point? <laughs> if you ran a team, Austin, would you have deal breakers on your board? Like, would you look at Kenny Pickett's hands yeah. and be like, no, no, no. No, can't draft that that guy's with his little hands. That means his dick I, is tiny too. <laughs> I probably wouldn't, right? I probably wouldn't have deal breakers outside of the medical stuff because I think that's probably of all the stuff in the in the draft I probably least understand. If I had a team doctor or a team of team doctors, it's like, yeah, his knees are going to degenerate at the level of like a six year old. It's like, okay, maybe I do take him off my board because right. like, I don't, I don't like that. The team doctors have so much weight in those rooms and in those evaluations like you have some of this discourse now on, on nicobe dean the, the linebacker of georgia who's i love nicobe dean love nicobe dean got a little bit smaller you know five foot eleven two thirty and he's got the shoulder issue and then there's some stuff about his knees and then it's like his ankle and it's like your doctor's saying all these things it's like it's gonna be stuff, tough for him to stay healthy and they have data backing some of that suggestion those are probably the reasons most I'm pushing people off boards, right? I think that's probably the reasons I'm thinking most. And then the, the other piece of this is off-field stuff, right? They they got you know, the NFL has so much more access to like criminal criminal records and and how that you know how those processes are going on. Like you know, Will Anderson is completely off my board. Just got indicted by a grand jury on rape charges. Like that's just like gone. You know, it doesn't matter how good he is. Right. Well, let, I want to talk about um, Nicobe's teammate, who I also really like, Jordan Davis. Jordan Davis is a fantastic player, but he plays. Uh, He's an interior defensive lineman, which, if you go by pro football focus, is not a high-value position in terms of draft value. Do you personally believe that some players are special enough to be exempt from those sort of metric boundaries that you guys have established with regard to positional value in the draft? Before that, I want to correct myself. Not Will Anderson, Adam Anderson. Will Anderson's the outcome. Yeah, okay. That's good. Yeah, now yeah. you won't get sued. Uh, yeah, that, you won't that get sued by that former Bengals tackle, Will Anderson. I've got to clear the bar there. Um, uh, I, I do, right? You think about the Quentin Nelson situation. You know, Quentin Nelson, interior offensive lineman, gets drafted inside the top 10. Um, and you're like, because you think he's generational or you believe he's generational. Now, he was. He is. He is. He is and he was. And I think the same conversations were had about Sequan Barkley, though. You know, I think that I'm, I don't think the, the pros outweigh the cons there. You know, I, I think if you hit on an interior offensive lineman or a running back or say even a tight end, TJ Hawkinson was drafted in the top 10, which I thought was ridiculous. You hit on these low value positions because you think they're generational. If it doesn't hit, it's awful. And even if it does, is Quentin Nelson even more valuable? This is going to be dangerous. Even more valuable than on the football field than Braden Smith? who is their offensive tackle there, who obviously limits more pressures and was highly paid. It's hard to say. I don't want to get into like PFF war and how you actually evaluate on-field metrics, but like it is very difficult for Quentin Nelson to be as valuable on the football field as even an average to above average receiver, just from a pure value standpoint and how you impact the game play to play. Now I probably take Quentin Nelson over average to above average receiver. Cause there's other things that affect that right leadership and, and, and continuity along the offensive line. And, and some of this just like blue chip mentality. And you'll also room. probably never have to pay him as much, right? Exactly. And you'll never yeah. have to pay him as much. That's a, I think Quentin Nelson should be paid as much as a tackle, but he's not going to, right. Cause the, the team has all the leverage in that situation. Even if he plays on the franchise tag, he gets paid at what the average of the top three in the at the guard position so it's definitely a good call out there as well um is trading down for extra picks i've always been conditioned to believe that that's the good idea to get more bites at the apple to use the cliche is it a shrewd idea uh the way that i've been conditioned to believe or is that 
been a bit overstated in recent years. I don't think it's overstated. I think it's still even still to this point understated, right? I think every team looks to trade down, especially in this year's draft. I think a lot of teams are going to be looking to trade down. Always. There yeah. There's always there that Schefter report where it's like teams are looking to trade down. <laughs> well, fun fact, all 32 GMs are interested in trading down, which is yep. crazy to say. Um, but I, I think with this year specifically, the gap between the 10th best player and the 32nd best player is not that wide. So I okay. can see teams like looking to trade down further. And I think, the analysis there, right, is if you're drafting, say you're drafting at 10th and the team trading up from 20 to 10 is grabbing a non-quarterback. I think quarterback changes everything. If you draft a quarterback, you trade up and draft a quarterback, it could offer more surplus value than the picks you traded away. Yes. If you trade up for a non-quarterback, how difficult it is, say, so you go from 10 to 20 and the person at 20 picks up a second and a third round pick. How difficult it is for that player you picked at 10 to be as valuable as those three players that other team is getting on rookie contracts. It's, it's very difficult, especially if they don't play quarterback. And if you draft an edge defender and the, the guy at 20 drafts an edge, a receiver in a corner, and they all play like 600 plus snaps in their you know, first year, that's going to be very difficult for that team to like recoup that value. Now, quarterback, I think, changes everything. Trading up for a quarterback can change your franchise. But trading up for like Marcus Davenport, like the Saints did a few years ago, Marcus Davenport has to be like a Hall of Famer to be as good as you know, the picks that they gave up for him. He is not. <laughs> he um, is not. Our own Kayla Keller did um... – did research. She found out that this draft um, is the oldest draft by far of like the past five years. And I think you guys found that it was better to draft guys who were young, like in the 20 to 21 mm-hmm. year old range. Do you, um, do you think that age matters to a draftee or are you like a GM who just like adores drafting senior captains? Big shout out to Kaylin Kaler. She's one of my friends. Very, very cool to see her work outlined there at the defector. Um, the, the situation there, one, why it's older is obviously you got a lot of guys who get like the COVID super senior stuff that are coming out. Right? That's right. Guys that are staying a little bit longer. Two, the age conversation I think is so bad. I, I, I think that it needs to be stated that it's not better to be younger. When it's better to be good when you're younger, right? It, you know, it's like this whole dominator rating breakout stuff where – Derek Stingley Jr. at 18 years old as a true freshman dominating in the SEC is very hard to do and much harder to do if you're 23 and dominating yes. the SEC. It doesn't matter how old you are when you're drafted. It matters how old you are when you were good. So you think about Kenny Pickett, who wasn't really good until he turned like 23 or 22, 23, whatever old he is. That's not as impressive as Sam Howell, who was like the highest grade quarterback in the ACC at 20 years old. Like, it's just like, that, that is where the age conversation comes up for me, right? For Jermaine Johnson. Jermaine Johnson, transferred from JUCO, goes to Georgia, doesn't see the field a lot, transfers to Florida State. Yeah, he has a lot of sacks, a lot of tackle production, but not a really great pass rusher. And he's also, like, going to play his entire season at, like, 23, 24 years old. He has not, like, broken out yet until late in his career when he's going against a lot of 18, 19-year-olds. And it's just easier to be good as you get older in college football. Like, you think about – you know, Amari Cooper, if he stayed in college longer, can you imagine Amari Cooper at 24 at Alabama? Oh my God. He probably yeah. would like killed, he probably would like broke records, but like right. instead, yep. he, he left Alabama at like 2021 and still was really good. So I think that's where the age conversation comes up for me. It's not better to draft younger players, but you should value players that were good at a young age. I think that that's where the conversation with like, you know, Austin Jackson, who went to, you know, came out of USC and was a first round pick. Super young player that was already, you know, producing well in a pack in the, in the power five and was super athletic. He was like, oh, I'm betting on that trajectory. A similar player this year is Tyler Smith of Tulsa. Tyler Smith is an offensive tackle that's like 20, 21 years old, was one of the highest grade run blockers in all of college football last year, and he still hasn't played his 23, 24 year old season. Whereas Bernard Ryman, the guy who comes from Austria, is going to turn 24 next year. And so, okay, we've already, we've already seen what that development looks like in his like age curve. 
Yeah. Uh, well said, Drew. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we, we, we've done a lot of... Uh, We've done a lot of nuts and bolts talking about the draft, but now we get to ask you some stupid, uh, some stupid shit, Austin. Uh, Let's do it. First of all, your company—it's owned by Chris Collinsworth. Have you ever met him? You ever hung out with him? Is he nice? Absolutely, absolutely. He's in the other room. He and him and I talk all the time. He's oh, the really? Can, can you bring him in to say hi? <laughs> Probably not. He's a busier guy than me, unfortunately. Uh, now that um, Al Michaels has gone to Amazon, uh, do you think that Chris will have more license to incorporate? Uh, more PFF findings into the Sunday Night Football broadcast instead of because I, I feel like there was a lot of blanket references to the analytics, like in quote marks, mm-hmm. like oh the analytics say to do this or that. But it was more sort of generalized. Do you think he might feel more uh, liberated? And I love Al Michaels, but uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if he feel that Chris might feel more liberated in the booth to take a more analytics forward approach to his analysis of a game in real time. It's an interesting conversation. I think Al is as big of a proponent of PFF and analytics as Chris is, to be honest. And Chris, Al has come into the office a handful of times and is a huge fan of PFF. And um, the, the guy who's replacing Al is Mike Tarico, who loves PFF maybe more than Al Michaels does. So I think that the bigger issue, not the big issues, but there will be a lot more conversation in analytics beyond just PFF in that broadcast as we continue to move forward. I think there's just, <clears throat> I think it's not that, you no, know, Al wasn't limiting any of that. I think with Chris and and, and Mike Tarico now, who's going to be in the booth, I think they're going to continue to still like evaluate fourth down decisions like they never have before. You know, a lot of that data is powered by PFF. And we're working with the producer there of Sunday Night Football, Fred Gadelli, really closely during the broadcast, before the broadcast, and after the broadcast to make sure that they're fitted with the best information possible. I guess the challenge is figuring out how to talk about it, right? Because I think that yes. so much of the way that this stuff has been handled on television for, you know, the entirety of my life. And I think for, you know, longer than that is like, you get a number that tells you how many yards the guy usually gets when he gets handed the ball, you know? And like, these are much more as we've, I think this has been a really interesting conversation because of the way that it like stretches the way that I'm thinking about stuff. Everything is kind of contingent in terms of how you're valuing these players on a bunch of different factors, you know, some of them having, you know, that which the players have nothing really to do with, Mm-hmm. But then, like, getting people to think about football in that way and, like, kind of like a holistic sense in terms of, like, where everyone is doing a different job that produces an outcome, that's, like, the opposite of how television sports works as, like, a, a generally as a narrative, yes. right? Well, also, yeah, you, only it, got, you only got five seconds before the snap goes off right, to explain right, it yeah. to somebody, too. So. And, and, like, honestly, that is probably the biggest reason why you don't see more advanced analytics conversation on those broadcasts, right? I think uh, talking to Fred Cadelli, who I think is one of the best football people to have ever done it. And he's the producer for Sunday Night Football. Um, he's like, if my mom can't understand it, I'm not going to put it on TV. You know, and that's that's a big, big thing, right? If you can't really effectively explain, you know, a process in, in analytics and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to really work, right? I you know where, that's, um, you know where it, belongs? it belongs in the studio show. Like, yes. I can't have fucking Phil Simms sitting there being like, well, GM, I don't know about these four. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, right. fuck off, man. Like, I need somebody in the studio before the game to at least lay the foundation so that I know, like, going in, okay. I like, yes. like The Phil you, Simms conversation can't happen, which I will applaud you, Drew, for that accent because I think yeah, that was nail on solid. the head. Thank I you. Think, thank uh, you so uh, much. I, I've been I working think on. Th- that's probably where there's the biggest growth, right? But I think it's like... That's I'm praying for that kind of growth for broadcasting. I think we're always going to see former players as color and and obviously people with the best voice doing the play by play. But for the studio shows, 
let's get some youth in there. Let's get some people who could talk about some of this stuff and how the NFL is evaluating fourth down decisions and stuff. When you just got like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's like, okay, you're not, you're not reading it, right. You're not reading what's actually going on. And, you know, we could have a lot of really good conversation about how teams are actually leveraging PFF data and next gen stats data and all this advanced analytics to make decisions on fourth down and make decisions going for two and all that stuff. Instead, we're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. You have to go for one there. It's like, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to punt. That's what's right. the worst expression in all of football. You have to punt. You don't have to punt on fourth down. You don't have to punt. It's crazy. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of other decisions you can make. Uh, you, like Chris Collinsworth, are based in Cincinnati. Have you had Skyline Chili, and are you willing to defend it on the record? I have not had Skyline Chili, and I will never have it. It's one of the grossest things I've ever seen. I'm from Oakland, California. <laughs> just, I, I've, been, I've been in Cincinnati for five years, my guy, and I will not do it. It, it, it is vile. It, it, a city has convinced itself of mediocrity beyond the Reds and the Bengals. <laughs> and it's, it's the food that is Skyline Chili, Gold Star Chili, etc. I don't understand the hype. And the best explanation I think I got it was from a Cincinnati local where they said, ah, if you haven't tried it yet, yeah, it's not great, but it grows on you. I don't want food that grows on you, <laughs> period. Yeah. I, I don't. Like, it's fine. Like, I, I, I'm good going my whole life without food that isn't initially good. And, and call me crazy for that, but I, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. It's like the old guys in the Unforgiven video by Metallica being like, after a while, I actually liked that there was no sunlight in my little cell. <laughs> like, I just like digging in the rock with this sharp stick that I had. And it's terrific. I actually am, am into that. But yeah, but the time I... Of all the foods that exist, like a fucking plate of chili should not be the one that has to grow on you like a Radiohead album. Like it should yeah. like it should be you should have a you should be able to evaluate really right. quickly. Know what you think about chili right off the bat is not yeah. a huge yes. ask. Yes, that's there the There was thing a place too. in New York that it, obviously it's the most obnoxious city in the world. I love it and I will probably never leave. But there one of the most ridiculous food trends here is that every now and then we get like an elevated chef-driven vision of some regional trash food by like some brilliant chef from that region. And there was for a while, like an elevated skyline chili that you could get and you could pay like $26 for that was like, it was duck meat and like Mexican chocolate and like all of the, like they were really like leaning into skyline like mole. Hot, yeah. Like, like ingredient that you could come up with. And like all the reviews are like, it's very strange. Like, and I yes. don't know why it's yes. over noodles. Like that's why is it? Is there's this. a thing you can get there called a Cholita where they put spaghetti noodles in this God forsaken chili in a burrito. And they're like, yeah, it's so good. Like, no, it's oh, not spaghetti like, in a burrito. It's, it's not Finally. good. It's not good. <laughs> yeah. It's you get that at a place good. that uh, has a lot of H our Giger branding in it because the idea of biting into something and then a bunch of spaghetti comes out to me is horrific I do think that the best the best representation of it was when it was on that random baseball broadcast that went that I don't know when it happened but it was on the baseball broadcast and it like literally showed like gray chili on noodles it was like yeah that doesn't look good either if you can't even make the commercials look good I don't know what to tell you now you get yeah. the you get the cheese that hasn't even been browned like yeah. it's just like it's sort of like sort of like half melted cheese is it's easily like one of the least appealing aesthetic yeah. things like that you could have. Hey, it's time to remember a guy. Every week we remember a guy, Austin Gale. You remember a guy with us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Well, in honor of the draft, your guy of the week, it's Darius Hayward Bay. Remember him, Austin? Bay. Of course. Of course. Of remember course. Al Davis draft, being like, oh. drafted ahead of uh, Michael Crabtree, which was oh, an absolute God. farce. I think he's also <laughs> drafted ahead of Jeremy Macklin. It was unbelievable. Uh, that was that was Al Davis's 
you know, chef's kiss to the, to the crew there. That was incredible. Yeah, that was his late work was really some of the most compelling of his career. I will say this career. about Darius Bay, Darius Bay. I've talked to, you no, know, he was in the league for a long time. Yeah, he, he played probably 10 years. Like, yeah, he played yeah. for the fucking Steelers too. And or anyone you talk to, so Bruce Gretkowski works at PFF. So he was a former Raiders quarterback and, and obviously played with Darius Bay for a little bit. And he also saw Darius Bay in Pittsburgh because you know, Bruce Gretkowski was a backup there and QB coach or whatever. He said, Hayward Bay, of any like bust he's ever been a part of. And Gradkowski was there for all the bad Jamarcus Russell stories too in, mm-hmm. in, in Oakland. He said of all the busts, that dude worked harder than anybody. He'd be on the jugs machine just watching him fall off his hands for like two hours after oh practice. Just, like, couldn't, oh, couldn't buy a bucket. But like it's a big reason why I think over the last 10 years, he might have like the second most special team snaps played. Like he was he was a dude. I, I, I feel bad for him because obviously he gets labeled as this bust because he was overdrafted. And I, you know, I have a phrase where I say players don't bust, teams bust. You know, teams set these expectations for players. Yeah. Hey, we're basically never been picked where he was picked, but he was. And that ultimately leads to this bust label. Um, so I, I, I feel bad for Davis here. That guy was that guy was good. He worked hard. He just couldn't catch the football or run routes. But becoming like a, a real NFL player at any position seems like kind of an achievement. It's just like, yeah, you're yes. right. It's, Yes. Way underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, this is this is hard. Uh, let's I open up the fun bag. We don't have much Darius time. Darius but... Bay Raiders jersey at Goodwill a year ago, and it Ooh. had all the stitched on shit, and it was so heavy. I would have bought it, but it was like wearing like a weighted blanket. Like there's a lot of letters <laughs> and a lot of numbers. Well, it'd be there. warm. It'd be warm. We it don't have been, much. Uh, we don't have much time uh, for the fun bag. We will get to one fun bag question for Austin Gale. This is from Tim. He writes in, how do you feel about other adults, especially coworkers, calling you bud or buddy? In particular, people mm. you only have a professional relationship with. I usually I mean, associate this phrase with a dad coaching T-ball, so it bothers me. But maybe my coworkers are just trying to be friendly, and I'm a misanthrope. Austin, are you okay when people call you bud or buddy buddy? I'm good with bud or buddy. Obviously, context matters, right? And it's like, take it easy, bud, I think is a little rough. Like, you're like, yeah. you better reel it in. I think... How's it going, buddy? It's fine. Like, hey, it's a little playful. I'm, I'm here for it. I definitely think that it's not my favorite, right? But I, I think I, I can get behind it if the context is okay. You do it to me in real life, I'm fine with it. You do it to me on Twitter, I will find you and fucking murder yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Doing it, that's definitely... Slack would be rough. You get that in the work Slack. It's like, hey, you know, you got this done for me, buddy. It's like, oh, no, it's going down. It's going <laughs> right. Down. Like, you're getting talked to like you're wearing one of those little hats with a propeller on the top of it. Yes. Like, that's insulting. Yeah. And yet, like, yeah, I say it to people in real life all the time. I say it to people that I'm actually friends with. Like, I don't know when I started doing that. I guess maybe I'm, it's like a dude replacement sort of thing because I feel <laughs> yeah, like that's all right. A little heavy on that for a while. I got palled on Twitter yesterday, and I did not care. For oh that my at god! All. By whom? But some fucker, you know. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like Thomas Chatton Williams. It was just some schmo. But I was not. I was happy. I think with that it would schmo. be great if you worked with Paulie Shore if he called you buddy a lot. Buddy, like if he was like if he, you caught him, for instance, he was say he's wheezing your nugs in an office setting. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder, our <laughs> producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com. And go subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at. And, of course, PFF.com is where Austin Gale works. They have been... I, I, I have to tell you that they have been a revelation to me this offseason, and they are the reason why I'm, I'm probably looking forward to this draft when I've been looking forward to drafts in any other recent year. So, Austin Gale, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, man. Of course. Yeah, of really fun. appreciate will you, it. Thank you so much. Will you, will you come on again sometime? 
Absolutely. All right. Well, Austin and his crew, they're doing a, a draft show on YouTube. So go to PFF.com to get more uh, details about that. Austin Gale, thank you so much. And see you, Roth. Bye. Bye.